Welcome to the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Nutera Ventures, your guide to healthcare investing. Join us as we explore interviews with pioneering entrepreneurs, investors, and innovative leaders, helping you spark innovation in the world of venture capital investing. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Clues from the Health Tech Invest podcast. I've got an exciting guest for you all today. Her name is Anisha Sood, and she is the CFO and Chief Strategy Officer at First Choice, a uh, third-party administrator in the healthcare services ecosystem. Anisha, I'm probably not giving First Choice enough justice there, so please unpack First Choice and then give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, happy to do so, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. So a little bit about First Choice and my role there. So First Choice is a third-party administrator. We are also a network medical management and EAP company. We were actually started over 35 years ago. So been around the healthcare space for a long, long time. First Choice was initially created as a network with a number of providers and hospitals and health systems looking to create a network alternative to the BUCAs at the time. And so they banded together and created First Choice Health. Over those last sort of three plus decades, First Choice has been an insurer and then decided no longer to be an insurer, retained all the capabilities to do claims and claims processing. So today have all of our TPA services. We have medical management services we've added along the way. We do utilization and case management. And then also along the way, developed an EAP. So EAPs are employee assistance programs, mostly known for providing access to behavioral health for employers, is also kind of a core part of our business. So I joined First Choice four years ago, then 2019. My role there is both on the strategy side and the finance side. So I think of myself as uh, self-regulating, if you will, having uh, you know the ability to drive strategy, drive our growth, which has been a big focus area for us, and drive our provider partnerships, but at the same time being conscious of the bottom line because I am responsible for that budget as well. Very cool. Very cool. You know, it's interesting. So I've been in healthcare for a while, and I think I understand what a TPA is and an EAP. I think you just eloquently described what that is. But tell us what exactly... What's a TPA? If you had to explain it to someone that's not a healthcare person, how would you describe it? Yeah, that's great. And this is a question I do get from friends and families, but it's a TPA. (laughs) So you asked the right question. So a third-party administrator is different than an insurer. And part of that is that we don't have an insurance license. Really, we work with folks that are self-insured. So employers, typically employers greater than 200 lives or more and can be from there who are saying, we're willing to take our own risk for healthcare claims. So we need somebody who can send out ID cards, answer the phone when our members have questions, adjudicate our claims, provide Hmm. us access to a provider network. And we do that all as an administrative partner. So any savings Hmm. that our network or our claims administration services bring to an employer are kept by them. In the more kind of traditional or insurance-based model, all of those savings would have been kept by the insurer. So TPAs are really an unbundled approach to healthcare and healthcare benefits. You can pick your own PBM. So for prescription drugs, which are becoming a greater and greater part of our health benefit spend, you can pick whoever you want to work with there. For stop loss providers as well. And on the stop loss side, let's say you have a claim that reaches, let's say over $100,000, you have stop loss insurance to protect against some of those large claims. Well, you get to pick your own stop loss provider. And there's a number of them out there so you can go shopping for those services. Insurers, the Bucas, the Blues, and a lot of the large nationals will say, no, we're going to bundle all our services together. And so we believe you get the best price, you get the best service, 
and you get the best level of customization for what your employees need by using a TPA versus using an insurer. Very interesting. So it sounds like TPAs are doing a lot of heavy lifting across the entire insurance ecosystem. It's kind of a, I mean, you work with insurers, correct? So you work closely with insurance companies to help drive benefits to the consumer. Are you actually interacting with the consumer directly or do you do so indirectly? Yeah, so we do because we answer the phone. So when you get a bill in the mail and you say, wow, why did this cost X amount? Or can you help explain that to me? When you pick up the phone and you call and you have First Choice Health as your administrator, you're talking to somebody at First Choice. So we have both member services and provider services where we have a direct interaction with either a provider of care or a member directly. So we have those direct member interactions. When we do work with insurance companies, it's usually in the form of stop loss or reinsurance. So in a self-insured world, the insurer is really the employer. So you work for a large company. So all your claims are paid for out of your own expense dollars. However, for really high cost dollar claims, they would go to a stop loss insurance. And then we would work with that stop loss insurance to make sure that that was paid back to your company. Okay. I'm going to ask you a whole lot of questions about this later on in the segment. But before we go there, I'd love to understand a little bit about your current role, your transition to your current role. So when you and I met almost a decade ago now, you were a venture investor at Cambia, which at the time I think was Echo Health Ventures. And you have this really amazing background. I mean, I know you started in banking and then went over to venture and now you're sort of in an operating role. I think as opposed to asking you to explain your career arc, tell me a little bit about what brought you to the operator side and what part of, call it corporate finance slash capital markets, do you like more? Do you enjoy investing, being an operator, banker? What sort of led you to your role? And then what do you like the most? Yeah, and great memory. So we met, it's been, I can't believe it's been about a decade. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was at Cambia and Cambia's uh, investment group became Echo Health Ventures. So even before that, as you mentioned, I have also a background in investment banking as well as consulting. But interestingly, I've been in healthcare my whole career. So I started out in consulting with healthcare, went into healthcare investment banking, then on the venture side, and clearly now, as you mentioned, to the operating side as well. So one of the reasons I really made that switch from more of a kind of service-oriented role, right, consulting, very service-focused and client-focused, banking, very similar venture as well, is that I really wanted to have that firsthand experience to be able to grow a company. I used to look at all my portfolio companies and really at the end of the day, as a venture investor, you're putting money forward, but you only get really to interact really at a strategy level on a quarterly basis. And you experience this as well, clearly, you're you're doing venture investing. It's at board meetings and it may be a few calls in between (laughs) board meetings, but it's not day to day. And you have a handful of those uh, companies as well, right? So you're tracking a number of your portfolio to ensure that they're making their milestones, figuring out that they have the capital that they need to go forward, that you can provide them with advice, but you only get that in snippets. And what I was finding is that was actually the most fun that I was having, was actually talking to them about how you're thinking about position, how you think about your product market fit, how you're thinking about growth. And so I thought I needed to do that myself firsthand. And So after being in venture investing for about six years, started looking at operating roles and was really pleased to find first choice where um, get to wear a number of hats. Very cool. Very cool. And when you first joined, if I'm not mistaken, you came in as CFO and recently took on the chief strategy officer role or were you always wearing both hats? 
Yeah. So I actually joined on the strategy side and then took on oh, the CFO role. Yeah. Not bad. Okay. So strategy. Yeah. First choice is experience a little bit of, I would say, a reemergence. First choice, as I mentioned, I've been around for 35 years, working primarily around the network side and on the TPA side. And really what we've been focused on since I've been there is trying to figure out that how we take what we have in front of us and actually move healthcare benefits forward. And so we've been working around direct to employer and partnerships with providers and offering employers actually configurable and customizable health benefits. That's been all of our work. And so that actually started on the strategy side and taking some of the stuff I saw on the venture side. Hey, you know what? There's a really great healthcare tech concierge company that we should take a look at. Do you have the right virtual Hmm. care partner, other, other services? And so I ended up starting on that side and then moving into chief uh, financial officer role as and adding that to my oversight as well uh, about a year and a half into the role. Interesting. Yeah, you know, when you think about chief strategy officer and the CFO, those are two different type of people and two different types of roles. But I think the way you just explained it, it makes total sense that you wear both hats because it sounds like you're being hyper innovative on the strategy side. It's like, what do we want to be when we grow up? And then the CFO piece of this is how do we practically get there and maintain financial viability? Is that how I should think about it? Or how do you balance both of the roles? That's actually very well said. That's exactly right. So we're trying to look and see how we grow and how we offer something innovative and actually meet our mission. But in order to do so, you know, there's a lot of steps involved and sometimes just capital required or investments that are required. But at the same time, we have a payroll to meet and a changing market environment. I used to say up until I think probably this year, I spent more of my time at first choice under sort of COVID and pandemic lockdown than I did actually in the office. And so you're dealing with all those external factors that are impacting your business for, you know, for which we didn't really have a lot of control. So how do you think about balancing both sides of the equation, being able to add the innovation, but at the same time, also making sure that everything is operating for the clients that we do have and the employees that we have as well. This has kind of become the stereotypical question to people, but your business is so unique compared to other sort of guests I've had on the show. Like I've noticed, I asked the question of how did COVID impact your business? And some people are like, oh, it was great. And others, it was, it was very draconian, I guess, depending on where you sit in the value chain. How was your business impacted by that? And how crazy was that starting a new role like this? as stepping into the operating role after being on the adventure side and doing so during the pandemic and at home. How was your business impacted and how did you weather the storm? Yeah, so from the most basic standpoint, the ability to work from home, I think First Choice is very lucky. We already had that in place. And so from an employee standpoint and the ability to service our clients, that for us was a fairly easy transition. What ended up really being more impactful to our business was the changing regulations. So all the regulations that are coming down on what you need to be able to pay for. If you remember early in the pandemic, paying for virtual visits at Parity, there was a lot of work around, you know, and the vaccine, the testing started to come out. How do you get that reimbursed? And given that we're in the business of managing health benefits, there were days where you had multiple of those changes coming through, or maybe something that came the day before changed the day later. And so I'd say it was a lot of work for our compliance and operations and account management teams to really make sure that we were staying on top of all the changing guidelines because that news was happening and changing by the moment. What was interesting, though, is, you know, a lot of the work I think I mentioned that we're trying to do is actually partner with providers and offer more innovative health benefits. 
And in the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like everybody was able to take a step back and focus a little bit on that. So we actually signed a few major partners and geographies that we had not even historically worked in while we were all working from home. And folks said, you know what? I want to be able to put this out in market. I have a little time to think about it. And we actually ended up launching with two major partners during the pandemic. And that actually was, I think, unexpected and a really nice surprise. That's awesome that you were able to pull that off in the midst of the pandemic. A lot of organizations were kind of holding back. It's like, what do we do here? We don't know what's to come. But it sounds like your insights, your experience, and your organization's kind of progressive thinking allowed you all to weather the storm and probably come out ahead of the curve in the midst of that. Have a lot of the the changes that you put in place in response to the pandemic Have they stuck after or did things go back to the way they were once we were sort of out of the pandemic? Although I'm not sure we ever got out of it. But uh, (laughs) yeah, how did some of those changes, how sustainable were they? Yeah, from a pure operation standpoint, very sustainable. It was easy for us to start to work from home. It's from an employee standpoint and service our clients as well from a virtual standpoint. And we keep those all today. We happen to be on modern platforms. We have a lot of folks that live outside of urban areas that end up are 100% remote. We heavily use chat. We are video first culture. And so all of that has been very sustainable for the long term. And unlike others, you're not going to any sort of office mandates or anything like that. I think for us, the biggest challenge through all of it is really how do we navigate the changing landscape in healthcare during all of it? Early in the pandemic, we didn't know how long we were going to be in it. And so, you know, a lot of our partners that joined us a lot of energy around that. A little bit later into the pandemic, the economy was actually still doing quite well and even coming awesome. out of the pandemic. But now the economy slowed down. There's clearly been a lot of questions around provider and provider reimbursement, challenges from the payer side. And so the healthcare environment, I think during the pandemic, was probably the one of the most impacted industries. And us just being in that industry and following what's happening this six months versus how's that changed for the prior, I think that's where we were really kind of put to the test. Very interesting. I'm learning a lot from this conversation and I'm particularly fascinated by the TPA model. It looks like you also have an EAP, which is interesting. It's an area I kind of know from when I was at Providence Ventures. We invested in a company called Lira Health, which is uh, trying to become, I'd say, well, is trying to become a new age EAP. So more software enabled, more virtual care enabled EAP. What's your thought process around some of the trends on the EAP side? Are there opportunities to kind of more tech enable that ecosystem? And what are you in first choicing? Yeah, I think it really depends on what your goal is with your EAP. And EAPs, I think, sometimes can have a dated reputation. They came out a long time ago. And when they came out, they were super innovative. And to your point, a lot of folks did not innovate around EAP for a long time. What we see within our EAP is that about two-thirds of the utilization of our clients' utilization of the EAP is for behavioral health services. So we end up staffing our EAP with clinicians, so we have LCSWs and other counselors on staff. In addition, our focus, so when somebody calls into the first choice EAP and, and where we try and differentiate is actually the time from call in to appointment Mm -hmm. for those behavioral health services. Okay, very cool. And right now, we just got an update from the head of our EAP, and we actually call and make appointments. The challenge for behavioral health is access, right? And so actually finding counselors that have spots that can take you when you can see them. Typically, EAPs give you a list of, you know, here's a list of counselors that are in network. 
customer service actually calls out to make an appointment. And right now we are able to get somebody, if they choose in person or if they choose a virtual option, connected to their behavioral health care that they need within one and a half days. Okay. Wow. That's incredible. Those are really impressive operational statistics. Obviously, I wouldn't expect you to give away the secret sauce, but that's having limited but some understanding of how EAPs operate. That sounds really impressive. I remember to kind of boil down to a a specific issue that uh, I remember came up during our conversations with various EAPs, as well as some of the issues that that I said Lear Health was trying to solve is is really matchmaking between the patient and the clinician. So not every clinician, not every patient are sort of ideally aligned. Sometimes it's really hard, particularly for a high acuity behavioral health condition, to find the right clinician for the patient. What's your kind of broader sense on what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in that? And what are some possible solutions for the kind of the provider and patient ecosystem? Sure. So for round EAP, I mean, if you think about real EAP is for, and this is where we have to distinguish a little bit of between what Lear and some of the behavioral health or tech-enabled behavioral health solutions do, is that EAP is really meant for assessment and referral. So the idea is it's something that happens Uh in the moment. It is something that is transitional. If you need ongoing behavioral health care, you're right. What you want to do is establish a really long-term relationship with a provider of care. What EAP is trying to do is to get you somebody immediately because something has happened that has impacted you, your life, and your being. Yeah. And so yeah. our goal is really, that's why we focus very much on speed and getting people access to that care. And then if somebody needs immediate care, having folks on staff that can kind of address that issue. But you're okay. right, matching and having that established relationship with a provider for a long-term relationship is really critical and does impact outcomes for members and patients. I see. So EAP is kind of like first line therapy, right? It's exactly. uh, you've got an acute event and some type of addiction or some type of high acuity event, and you're trying to get that patient help ASAP. And then there's a handoff. I understand now. That makes sense. You know, that's the nice thing about the virtual care ecosystem. We didn't invest, but I'm I'm aware of a company called Apti Health in the Northeast region. They're based out of New York or New Jersey. They specialize in providing kind of longitudinal high acuity care. And I think that that EAP referral stream tends to be very fruitful for them, right? So what are some of the other challenges you're seeing in kind of the behavioral health space? I know that I feel like on one hand, during the pandemic, we have this mantra, virtual care can solve everything. It can solve all behavioral health. It can solve all of your chronic conditions. But I think realities are kind of settling in and we're saying, look, not everything can be fixed virtually or bricks and mortar. Maybe it's a combination of both. What are you kind of seeing in terms of trends, kind of more specifically around behavioral health, given that that's kind of the EAP sweet spot? Yeah. So I will just give you my philosophy on telehealth. And I don't know if you recall, but when we were investing out at Canby, I had a couple of actually portfolio companies that I invested in that were on the telehealth side. My general philosophy is that telehealth is a modality. Mm -hmm. It is not an alternative to care. So the ideal for anybody is to get your provider to provide services in a virtual manner or any manner that is convenient to you. And if telehealth is the right way to do it, 
that's great. If chat is the right way to do it, or if you need to be seen in person, that's the right way to do it as well. But sure. it's not meant to be a disruption of the patient-provider relationship. It's meant to be an enabler and an additional modality. What we saw during the pandemic is clearly very high utilization of, of virtual care. Virtual care took a long time, I feel like, to get really robust engagement. And mm-hmm. the pandemic really did accelerate that. And we saw that as well. First Choice ended up offering our partner to all of our TPA clients at no charge during that time because we realized, you know, there's so many closed doors for people who needed to seek care that we just wanted to provide something out there. The numbers have dropped quite a bit, though. A lot of that utilization has come back to in-person care and we haven't seen it stick. However, the one area where it has stuck is on behavioral health. That is one area where virtual is quite high. I think for across the industry is probably about 40 or 50% of those visits that really can be done in a virtual setting. And that's one where I think it's a perfect modality, typically works best if you have an established relationship and you're continuing an established relationship. But Mm -hmm. really, I think that's where one where telehealth has really shown is uh, on the behavioral health side. Very cool. I'm kind of seeing something very similar. So that's pretty interesting. In terms of your, the other side of the business, the TPA, what are and call it the non-EAP side of your business. What other kind of technology trends are you seeing impact that part of the business that's getting you really excited and, and you feel there's significant promise around? Yeah, so you know, I spent a long time looking at the digital health space. And so when I got to First Choice, I had a number of ideas in terms of what we could be doing around digital health and how we could be using our platform with employers and providers to be able to use some of these tools. And what I found is, and this was, I think, always a challenge from the venture side is, again, engagement tends to be a challenge, particularly if you overdo it on digital health solutions. You want to be really particular about the solutions that you're offering and the fact that the solutions that you're offering are the right fit for the employee base that you're working with and that folks want that type of solution. And so we've been actually really moderated in terms of what we're plugging into our platform to not overwhelm the end consumer. And there still needs to always be an ability to kind of go between modalities. So the ability to move between a chat-based modality and an in-person modality, if you need to, or from that into video. And so the investments, some of the fundamental investments that we've been making have been at the core of our business, which is around using AWS and some of those capabilities so we can switch between modalities. Another platform that we're investing heavily in is Salesforce. So that's not only the tracking, but the ability to manage all those different types of interactions with our members and our clients in a single location. So digital health clearly has a place for all of it, but really it's trying to be particular for the use case that you're looking for. If mm-hmm. somebody's in a really stressful situation from a healthcare standpoint, they want to talk to a human. But yeah. you know, if somebody's just trying yeah. to call and ask about, you know, explanation on an a, you know an EOB, then we can handle that in a variety of different ways. And so I think it's balance of modalities and mm-hmm. trying to meet the member where they are. I love that. That's kind of my takeaway from our discussion today. It's virtual care and maybe digital health is really modality, not solution, right? I think we get a little disillusioned by digital health or healthcare IT. Like it's the solution to all of our problems, but it's really a modality. And without the proper application of the modality, there can be no solution, right? So it's really, really interesting how you're thinking about it. And this is why I love operational experience, because you can really put to practice some of these hypotheses that we form on the venture side. So that's pretty cool. 
I'd love to just kind of back up a minute. I know we've been talking a lot about TPAs, the EAP, and specific trends that you're seeing, but I want to get a better handle on maybe not so much the personal side, since it's really a professional question, but what motivated you to get into healthcare? What got you into it? I know you were a healthcare banker, but what led you to the industry? What kind of motivated you to enter it? You know, when I was going to college, I said, you know what, what do I really like to do? What do I like to learn? And math and science were up there for me. And so I thought, you know what, I can marry those two perfectly together. And so I went after a degree in biomedical engineering. So biomedical engineering. Cool, me too. Oh, yeah, that's right. We had this this conversation once before. Yeah, and it's a great degree to have because you have have the science perspective, you have the math perspective, you know, the math and engineering, a little bit of the computer science, depending on your program. Then real world experience kicks in. And I did a couple of internships and and talked to people in the industry and then sort of realized I didn't really have a passion for engineering. Yeah. And what I really did want to do is I looked around campus and said, what is it that I would really like to do, you know, after I get my degree? And there was just an allure to consulting. It was new projects to a whole bunch of different places to try it and different clients. And, you know, as a 20-something, the travel, right? I get to to be in all (laughs) these different places. I mean, my eccentric career took me to East Coast, to North Carolina, to California, and then to Switzerland as well. And so, I mean, the allure of that is somebody who's just starting their career was pretty high. And so, that's what moved me from the more technical side, I should say, of health and healthcare to the business side. Very cool. I went into biomedical engineering because my parents told me I was either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Mm. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I might as well be a doctor. And so I enjoyed building stuff. And so I'm like, you know what? I think I'll be an engineer. This gives me more option value. But no, that's super interesting. I think Engineering degrees are good foundation for a lot of different segues, right? So that's kind of interesting. What motivated you to leave consulting to go to banking? I know you alluded to it earlier, but what was your motivation there? For me, honestly, I feel like all the changes in my career have been the motivation to learn something different. Okay. I spent a number of years on the consulting side. I felt like I had opportunity to learn. I'm sure there was always much more to learn, but I feel like I got the experience that I needed and got to learn a bunch of different things. And uh-huh. I said, you know, for me next, I want to go into finance. And so I entered business school saying I want to be able to have a concentration in finance and left with that concentration as well as accounting and then really went full steam ahead into investment banking. And then again, you know, investment banking, I had an opportunity to learn for a number of years. I got the opportunity to continue with that, that craft for a number of years and then figure out, you know what, I'd actually like to put capital to work now that I have such a good background in terms of deal and deal execution and ideal structuring. And so for me, it was always establishing myself in a particular area, learning what it is I needed to learn, contributing to the organization for which I worked, and then moving on to say, now's a chance for me to learn something new. Awesome. Speaking of kind of learning new things, and I personally found I learned the most out of setbacks and challenges that I've had. I've had plenty of them. If you don't mind sharing, what kind of challenges or setbacks have you had and what did you learn from it? Yeah. So I would say what I've learned for it is not healthcare. to put you on the spot. No, that's <laughs> totally fine. I don't mind. Uh, I would say I probably can think of one setback from a, you know, from a business standpoint, but personally, as I think about it, you know, I think I'm just grateful to be in healthcare. So I will tell you that I started my consulting career in 2001 and I was on the bench in 2001 waiting to be staffed in my first project as a new graduate watching 9-11 happen on my television. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
And so I watched colleague after colleague, right-sizing of the organization happened and healthcare was a huge benefit because healthcare tends to be much more stable of an industry. So I credit being in the healthcare industry for being there for my career. My second one was I started an investment banking in 2008. I started in the healthcare group two days before Lehman Brothers went down. What I know. (laughs) I do not have the best timing, but I've been very lucky because I've been in the healthcare industry and that is the industry that had survived through it. And all of us that started in healthcare ended up having really fruitful careers in banking because of the industry that we were in. So I look back on setbacks and say, oh, my timing was terrible. But you know what? I'm pretty grateful to be in the industry that I'm in. Wow. That's quite the story. That is quite the story. So were you at Accenture on 9-11? Were you still studying? What was the story there? Were you in New York by chance or what, what no, was the story? No, I was there? in Los Angeles. So I am a, a USC so graduate, go Trojans. And so I was in Los Angeles with Accenture. Yeah. Oh, wow. You must have uh, you probably had colleagues in, uh, was Accenture in one of the buildings or no? No, Accenture. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you forget about that. I mean, I was freshman in college, 9-11 happened. So a little younger there, but you forget that people you work with were doing their Wall Street stint or their consulting stint, which involves lots of Wall Street, New York time and New York travel. Lots of folks that were either on the road or in and out of New York around that time that were impacted by this. And, and I'd find those stories really, really compelling. And thanks for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I um, really appreciate you sharing kind of the setbacks. I think it's, I know that the recession of 2008 was probably the biggest one, correct me if I'm wrong, that you've endured. I don't know. Did you feel the bubble? Was the bubble kind of impactful on your business or was the 2008 recession a big one in your mind? Yeah. I mean, so the 2001 bubble burst when I joined consulting and then the 2008, clearly from the banking standpoint, burst. I remember being in a meeting, I think it was on the equity capital market side and the cost to raise the cost of debt was so through the roof that nobody did a deal for a year when I was in banking. And so, you know, you get to wow. banking all excited, ready to do your <laughs> M&A, your leverage finance deal, whatever that might be. And you're realizing the cost of capital is so high wow. that nobody's going to be doing anything for a little bit of time. And so, you know, definitely impacted from a, a I think just slowed down the start a little bit. But everybody, I mean, both of those, I think, were felt pretty acutely. Sure. Nobody's got a crystal ball here, but how does the current recession, you hear about recessions, you know, interest rates are high and, and cost of capital has gone up. What's your sort of take on the current climate that we're in and kind of where we're headed? Any thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, if I put my old venture investing hat on, what you're seeing happen from that side is folks are typically tend to be a little more risk averse, right? For There was a lot of capital going after lots of different, you mentioned behavioral health, for example, a lot of behavioral health investments were getting funded not but a few years ago. And I think everybody now is taking a step back and saying, I'd actually like my companies to get to profitability faster versus kind of growth at all costs. And so you see that market starting to change. I think, again, in recessionary markets, what you find is those that have prepared to operate in a recessionary environment are the ones that kind of end up ahead. Those that were hoping that the good times kind of continued, they tend to be a little bit less successful. And so Making sure, I mean, I think about it from the first choice standpoint, do we have enough products, services, and capital to ensure that we can make it through multiple types of market environments? And I think that really behooved us both during the pandemic, right now, where we have some more traditional products, and then we're ready for our more innovative products that folks were interested in pre-pandemic. 
and are now starting to get interested in as they think about health and health spend as a key cost area for them and the willingness to do more. And so it's all about having that balance and not making sure you don't go too heavy on one lever at the expense of another. Sure, sure. That's really, really insightful. Thanks for sharing with our listeners. It's really interesting, Anisha, because you know I've had the good fortune of collaborating with you and working with you and have learned so much from you. You're definitely one of the smartest people I've had the privilege of collaborating with. And your background is awesome, right? You've got an amazing background and could be an inspiration to a lot of our younger listeners out there who are aspiring to be the future Anisha Sood, right? So what kind of advice do you give some of the younger professionals out there looking to get into your line of work? Yeah. So I would say uh, your career is unlikely to be linear. When I look at, back at mine and say, I've, I've changed a number of times. I've always mentioned, I've always stayed in healthcare, but I have so many different perspectives on it. Pharmaceuticals and clinical trials and the finance side and early stage and, and now kind of all more on a growth stage and scaling stage. And so I look at that and say, you know what? I don't know that I would have the perspective that I had without all those changes. I was talking to a colleague today, our CTO, and we're talking about some work we're doing on the analytics side. And he's like, you have a very good understanding of the analytics side. And I'm like, yeah, because 20 years ago in my consulting <laughs> role, I actually spent a bunch of time doing reporting and understanding databases and, and how to pull data and how to do data visualization. And yes. so uh, clearly I've spent 20 years unlearning that, not unlearning that, <laughs> that, that went dormant for a while. <laughs> and now for some reason it's back up, but I get to be so, I feel like I'm so much more informed when I'm having to do this from a strategy standpoint. So it's not the same as having to do it like I did it before, but all of those sort of experiences inform you as you go forward. So I would, my advice is always to try a bunch of things and, and try a bunch of things that interest you and challenge you and you'll be better for it. Yeah. You know, Bill Riker, who's one of my partners here at my current shop, he calls the career arc the nonlinear stepladder. Okay? Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said about everything you do in your life, right? Being boots on the ground, being an operator, will kind of better inform your investment strategy, doing, like you said, being an advisor to multiple companies across even the, in the same industry, but multiple sort of logos teaches you something. And so you learn the hard skills, you learn the industry experience, and it all sort of makes you a more informed executive. So I think that's really, really well said. And I think our listeners will appreciate that. Nisha, I've I've enjoyed our time together. We've spoken about a lot of different topics. We've covered a lot of different ground, but I did want to give you the last word in being able to share your call to action to our listeners. So what's your call to action and where can they follow you and your work? My call to action, I would say, would be putting into the minds of you, your listeners and folks that are running health benefits for themselves is that you don't need to accept sort of the status quo. We talked a little bit early on in this conversation, Tom, about what we can do when we disaggregate things and actually have the ability to pull different types of solutions together and stitch them all together. But also, we probably didn't mention this, but where there can be money that's hidden oftentimes. And so what we're trying to do from the first choice standpoint is kind of add transparency to that, add data to that, add analytics to that and actually create health care and health benefits that actually work for employees. So my call to action is don't expect the status quo from your health benefits. Look for something different. There is ways to make it simple, to make it transparent, to make it actionable. And I hope your listeners take that and say, yeah, I can look at that a little bit more deeply and potentially make a change. That's awesome. That's well said. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people find you? 
Are you on uh, LinkedIn or do you have a handle to share? Want to be mindful of people's Twitter accounts? <laughs> is, it, is it still Twitter? X now, maybe Y or Z since we've spoken. Yeah, so I am on LinkedIn. So Anisha Sood, you'll find me very easily on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anisha. You are an absolute rock star. And uh, it's very lovely to chat with you. Look forward to having you back on the podcast again. And we can talk about some more exciting topics in the future. But thank you for being on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed this. Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Natera Ventures, your go-to source for healthcare and tech venture investing. For additional information, resources, and ways to connect with us, please visit NateraVentures.com. Together, let's spark innovation for the future of tech and healthcare investing.